Several years ago, when I was down in Florida covering the Gemini Thora Gina shots and later the Apollo moon shots for the television and radio audience that we had at that time, I was standing there for my very first Saturn V launch, and the closest they would allow any of the news media to get to the actual launch pad was three miles. Now, that sounds like a long way away, but when there's nothing between you and that huge missile but a kind of a swamp area with a little bit of a lagoon, and you see the thing shimmering in the early dawn light over there with the spotlights on it and the smoke kind of slowly drifting down from it as you realize that the super cool liquid hydrogen or liquid oxygen has already been put aboard. And you slowly see that big gantry coming back and the umbilical being detached. You knew that the astronauts have been loaded far ahead of that time. And gradually dawn comes. You keep hearing the announcement over this big blaring loudspeaker that we're at T-minus 23 and counting. And they tell you about the launch and this and that. And you're looking at that monstrous thing over there and realizing it is 36 stories high. Now this is a one-story building, you know. It doesn't even have a second floor above it. The first time in my life I ever saw a building that high, having grown up in the valley there in Oregon, I went to Seattle, Washington when I was about eight or nine years of age. And at that time, the biggest building, I guess west of Chicago on the west coast, and I'm dating myself, was the Smith Tower in Seattle, Washington. It had a clock up on a pinnacle on the top of it, and it was 36 stories high. Well, the biggest building, our skyscraper in Eugene, was nine stories, and of course it was quite a, an awesome sight for a young boy to go up in the elevator and to go out and look from the top of nine stories at the skyline of Eugene. But boy, when I got into the top of the Smith Tower, and I could see all of Puget Sound and some of the Navy ships and all of Seattle laid out below, now that was a thrill. But to realize that there was a missile over there that was shaped not unlike a 270 bullet, a cartridge that someone might use in a modern hunting rifle, 36 stories in the air. And that it was powered by five Saturn V rocket engines that developed an accumulative 7 million pounds of thrust. And then to have not one but several cameras on me and to be facing the launch site, have a little microphone in my hand, and be talking away about it and have all the statistics memorized about the entire site and just exactly where they were going to go and how many orbits and about the LEM and what it was like and all of this. And I did an article for the magazine on it at the same time. And then to have that huge sudden burst of smoke go out with a huge orange cloud and it was almost maybe ten seconds later or whatever before the shock wave hit me. It was like some big man had walked up and just shoved me in the chest all of a sudden and I nearly fell over and the change in my pocket was jingling and my voice was trembling because the ground under my feet was literally shaking with this ear-splitting staccato-like crackling noise. It wasn't really a steady thunderous roar because that explosion had developed what is called a diamond effect and it kind of cancels out the sound. When sound gets to a certain loudness, they call it a diamond effect, so it appeared to be almost like a giant series of firecrackers going off. And ever so slowly, that missile began to rise and pick up speed, and by the time it had left the gantry, it was just soaring up just a very few feet a minute, 
and then really began to pick up speed with the tongue kind of flickering out the base of it. You've seen that how many times on television? You've watched the launch of uh, Spaceship Columbia, and recently we had another one, and it's back now already, and you've seen many of these huge missiles. Well, the one I saw go was one of the biggest America has ever manufactured, 7 million pounds, and I saw several of those, but it was an incredible and awesome experience. And the sheer raw power in that missile was just impressive beyond my ability to describe it. I failed to describe it then, I fail now, because mere words cannot replace the experience. You would literally have to be standing there and have a shock wave nearly, you know, blow your hair straight and nearly knock you over and shake the change in your pocket and cause the earth to shake before you would know what I'm talking about. Quite a number of years ago, when my brother had come back from the Nevada desert where he'd gone, and I guess uh, as long as you were within a certain number of miles away, it was safe to do so. But he received permission, and he had to have special dark glasses, and he got to watch something I have never seen, which was the test burst of an atomic weapon in the Nevada desert. Now, Dick was killed in an automobile accident back in 1958, but this was back, I believe, in the 1940s, the late 1940s, before some of the nuclear test bans, and he described it to me. And, of course, the flash, and then later on it was minutes, I think, before the shock wave actually reached him. But the fact that this mushrooming cloud went clear up into the 30s of thousands of feet in like two seconds is just enormous when you stop to think of the fact that when I flew a Fanjet Falcon, we would step climb the Falcon as we burnt the fuel. We could not go at full speed directly to 35,000 feet. We'd have to level off at 31 for a little while, and we'd be in a pretty good deck angle and burn off some fuel and then kind of step climb it on up at about 500 feet a minute until we could get to 35,000 feet. But essentially, we flight plan for about 1,000 feet a minute, about 35 minutes to 35,000 feet eventually. We initially began at about 5,000 feet a minute but because we had to kind of shallow that out in the last little part of the climb. It would require over a half hour to get to our cruise level. Yet in the G2, from a standing start, I could put the power all the way to the wall. We could go to 41,000 feet in exactly 14 minutes. And I mean, when you were in that G2 and you crammed the power to the wall, it just pushed you back in your seat. You couldn't get up and walk around if you tried. And if everything was not secured and tied down, the books would come tumbling out of the shelves and the tray would come forward and tip over in your lap and you've really got to be all secured in your seat because of the thrust of those big Rolls-Royce Spey engines. But now an F-4, and they're already obsolete, can take off, rotate, point it straight up, and go out through 50,000 feet in under five minutes. But an F-16 can do that in just over three minutes. But you know, I have never, never, never seen a man that was able to pass a construction site with a huge steam shovel at work who wasn't able to stop and look at it. He couldn't, he couldn't, force himself to walk on. In New York City, they would have it walled off so people couldn't fall into the chasm where they were building down for the foundation of a big skyscraper, but they would put windows, holes, or even glass or plastic windows because they knew that passers-by would try to climb the fence. It's something men, especially, I don't know about women, they just cannot avoid it because there's something about a giant D9 shoveling earth, a huge... Uh, maybe caterpillar or other type of earth-moving machine out here or a huge steam shovel and the power of moving tons of earth with one bite that is fascinating to us. 
I have always been fascinated by force, by energy, by power, and something that is that powerful that you actually can be a part of, you can see, you can experience it beating on your very chest, is just awesome to me. I've seen on television ads here recently, I guess a few months ago, that in Fort Worth at a certain time of the year, they get in a huge arena over there somewhere, and they have tractor pulls. And they have these big semi-engines, you know, these Peterbilts and Macs and Whites and all these big trucks, and they chain them facing in opposite directions with a huge chain. And then the men get in there, and at a certain count, they cram full power on, and they're pulling and tugging, and they're having an actual tug-of-war between these great big tractors or bulldozers or semi-trailer trucks or tractors. And I imagine that is a very exciting thing to see. We're all very impressed with power. I want you to turn to a scripture in the first chapter of the book of Acts and take a look at this word we find literally dozens of times in the Bible. It is called power, and it's used in connection time and again with the power of Satan, like he is called the prince of the power of the air, or it's used in connection with God, the power of God. They were gazing up into heaven when all of this was happening and seeing Jesus taken out of their sight. But just before that, if we turn back and look at verse 7 of the first chapter of Acts, the disciples had been told that it was not for them to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, meaning under his control or under his authority. Verse 8, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And of course, just while he had spoken, or just after he had spoken those things, they watched in utter amazement. And not unlike that missile launch that I saw, they saw a human being, except now he was changed, he was spirit, but he was still in human shape as he talked to them. And perhaps he was white or translucent or glowing, I don't know, it doesn't describe that in the Bible. But they saw him actually, not unlike that missile launch, just slowly being taken up and disappearing into the clouds above their heads. The very first message to ever come back from heaven after Christ left the earth is contained in the next couple of verses. You men of Galilee, why do you stand staring or gazing off up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. I was dumbfounded when I found several years ago, when I was still in Ambassador College, that 44% of the graduates of the theological seminaries in the United States reject the bodily return of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That scripture we just read. And it was hard for me to cope with because I thought, well, how can that be? How can people be graduating from various inter-congregational or non-denominational or Lutheran or Baptist or whatever seminaries and getting a certificate and going out here as preachers and standing in the pulpits every Sunday and preaching to people who are supposed to be Christians and almost half of them deny that Christ is going to come again? That was a mind-boggling statistic to learn that. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, a great miracle occurred, and I have heard in my lifetime from the days when Oregon was a very backwards kind of a state and radio was in its infancy, dozens if not hundreds of evangelists, many of whom seemed to come from the south, 
who have tried to portray what all of this meant in the second chapter of the book of Acts, and just what it meant for the disciples to receive power, and what kind of power it was, and what that power caused them to do, or what they were capable of of producing or affecting or demonstrating to other people with all of this power they were supposed to have. Matter of fact, there have been radio and television programs called The Hour of Power. I remember a man named A. A. Allen. I went to the only sort of tent camp revival in my entire life when A. A. Allen was holding forth in a huge tent that may have seated ten to fifteen thousand people in a couple of vacant lots in the south side of Los Angeles. Then Mr. and Mrs. John and Audrey Hill were very young newlyweds, and my wife and I were young newlyweds as well. We were all in Ambassador College, and we saw in the ad that A.A. Allen was going to be in town. I had never been to such a thing, though I had remembered some of the rather Pentecostal flavor of some of the preachers up in Oregon at the Church of God Seventh Day, and I had heard people standing up in the pulpit and cavorting about and shouting and wheezing and gasping and punctuating the end of each word with an explosive ah, as if that was some kind of a way that they were expected to preach. Little did I expect what I heard that night on the platform in that big, huge tent in Los Angeles. A. A. Allen was cavorting about on that stage up there, claiming that this was a night of double portion. It was advertised in the paper that it was double portion night, not just a plain old everyday single portion of God's Spirit, but a double portion, like a double whammy. The people who were there were going to be blessed and were going to be inspired double the amount of the folks who went home, probably disappointed the night before. Well, he was up there behind the pulpit. He got so warm to his subject, he took off his jacket, and he loosened his tie, and he opened his collar. And then he began talking about how his palms were fairly glistening with holy oil talked about the holy oil. He could feel it, and it was moving in this tent here tonight. And you could see that his palms were glistening all right, although I figured it was probably just plain old dirty sweat. I didn't really believe the story that it was holy oil. He claimed that the tent was filled with something, and I began to feel uneasy. And John and I and Audrey and Cheryl looked at each other, and we began to feel uneasy. And because we were uneasy, we made the ushers uneasy. And the ushers kept an eye on us because we were toward the rear of the tent and we weren't really entering into the spirit of things the way other people were. Well, I described this in one section in the Real Jesus book about the fat little gal in front of us who urged her brother to jump up on the, on the chair and do as she did because we saw her do that. She jumped up on the chair and began screaming and shouting. Well, we'd heard all of the whispered communication in advance. And she'd said, watch this, I'll do it first to egg him on. So she turned her chair around and jumped up on the chair and began screaming and waving her arms. A.A. A. Allen was totally fooled by it. He thought it was from the Lord, and he told the whole audience. He said, message from God. And he pointed the whole audience over to this fat gal standing on her chair, jiggling. And the whole audience was taken in by this fat gal. But we sat right behind her. We heard her. She was just trying to egg her little brother on. Well, you know, then he got a pitcher of water, and this to me was the utter blasphemy of the evening. And he began to pretend that the Holy Spirit was poured out in that tent like water. And he took a glass and he poured the whole pitcher into one glass. 
and sloshed it out of the glass and all over, about his cup runneth over, and he was prancing around and preaching about the Holy Spirit of God and pouring water on himself and on the platform. I was disgusted. I was sick to my stomach. I thought, that is a, is a fake kind of a, a, a charlatan fraud up there. And these people in this tent are ignorant beyond my ability to comprehend. And they are eating this up, especially the first third of the tent. It seemed the closer they were to the stage, the more it seemed the message from the rear was really a message from God. Is what happened in the second chapter of, book, of the book of Acts to be equated with what the churches of this world parade about and prattle around about and portray on television as the so-called power of God? It says in the second chapter, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord, they were with one mind, they were in agreement in one place, as Christ had told them to be. And suddenly, so it wasn't worked up gradually by someone orchestrating the emotions of a crowd, but suddenly came a sound from heaven. Now, where did the sound come from? Did the sound come from the hoarse throat of an evangelist? Did it come from the throats or the voices of screaming women? No, it came from heaven, from a divine, heavenly source. It was a sound that sounded not unlike a roaring, rushing hurricane, like a huge wind that was about to blow the tree down outside. And it filled the house where they were sitting. The sound was like a roar, a huge roar of wind. And there appeared unto them, unfortunately the King James English says cloven. The Greek word means divided equally or distributed evenly. Tongues, again, is an unfortunate problem with the English language because we speak of flames flickering like tongues of fire because of the fact that a snake's tongue or a bird's tongue or a man's tongue or a dog's tongue might appear to flicker and because flames of fire are called in our language tongues of fire. Actually, what appeared were flames flickering, leaping, like flames always do, like a fiery crown. Imagine almost like the whole head and like the width of the head, not a little forked tongue as some people tend to think, but like a crown, a mitre, maybe this tall or so, of actual flickering flames, and yet the hair was not burning, like a fiery clown, a crown on the head of each one of these twelve. There appeared unto them, not unto the disciples, unto the audience, unto all of them, equally distributed flickering flames of fire, and it sat upon, or hovered over, rested upon, each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages, the Greek word is glossa, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, and of course people began running and telling other in the, in the streets, and they began running and telling their friends and neighbors, and they were shouting back and forth. So within an hour, two or three, it was reaching the furthest city walls, and a whole city knew that something really fantastic was happening in the court of the temple. 
the multitude came together and were confounded, and this had to take a certain period of time, so there had to be time for maybe the first two or three or four of the apostles, as they were then, to complete the statements they were making, and for another to take his turn and to begin to speak. Remember in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, and it says, If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, and the other speak, that everything may be done decently and in order, for God is not the author of confusion, but of order and of peace as in all churches of the saints. So these spoke one after the other. Every man, and you'll hear later who they were, heard them, each of them, not all together, not all speaking at the same time, but one after the other, speak in his, that is, these strangers, these proselytes, these wayfarers and pilgrims from other parts of the empire, heard each apostle, whether it was Simon the Canaanite or whether it was, it was Peter or James or John, speaking in a tongue or language that he could understand. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? But now we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. How, how is this ha happening? How can it be that we're hearing them when they're Galileans? Where do they learn our language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, and Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, so they spoke Arabic as well. We hear them speak in our languages the wonderful works of God. And some of them began to say, well, they've been at the wine shops. Peter says, nonsense, that can't be, because you see, their wine shops aren't even open. It's only the third hour of the day. That would be illegal. They mocked and said, they've got to be full of new wine. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. These are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And you can turn back to Joel 2, 28-32 and read it, if you will. I will... In the last days it shall come to pass, saith God, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, no matter what some church hierarchies think, shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit and they shall prophesy. Question. Is the manifestation of a human voice speaking of great exalted things of God the greatest goal in life? Is that what this is really all about? Oh, might some young lady think, if I could ever be chosen to prophesy, and oh, how many times in my 27 years in the ministry of Christ have I run into people, men, more than women in this case, whose some goal in life seems to be to be able to stand up in front of a congregation. It doesn't matter to them if it's 5 or 9 or 17 or 25 or 130. They're willing to settle for whatever they can get. But it seems their biggest goal in life is to be up in front of a group of people waving their arms and shouting into the air and being a preacher. 
how I begged God not to make me into a preacher. I didn't want to be a preacher, and many times in between that time and today, I have still not wanted to be a preacher. And when people call me a preacher, I resent it. I would rather be called a minister than a preacher because of the word that that conveys to a lot of people. I'm trying to come to a comparison, which I will make very clear by the end of this sermon, about what is the power of God, how may we tap that power, how may we see the power of God manifested in our own lives, and is what I have heard all my life from Protestant preachers, from Foursquare and Pentecostals and others, from the A.A. A. Allens of the world, the real power of God is a powerful voice magnified many times by amplification in a tent or an auditorium. Power. I can get real loud here today and hurt your ears and mine. Is that power? Is it power to move, to sway, to mesmerize, to partially, partially hypnotize, to enthrall, to cause to become spellbound, to move to tears, an audience of thousands? Is that power? You know, a lot of people seem to equate people standing up before other people and shouting about religion to be power. And they will even have the people with their goiters that disappear, and once in a while someone who hobbles away without his crutches, or people who fall over backwards, stiff as a poker, and claim that they've been healed. And I don't really know because I haven't interviewed some of those people, but it does make one wonder. He says in verse 18, On my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood. Oh, how many times have we read over that and not really noticed what it meant? God is going to show signs, and some of those signs are going to be blood. Now, you know, if I look into the book of Revelation, and I see where God is saying in a type calling the vultures, calling the peregrine falcons, calling the eagles and the crows, calling the cormorants and the hooded mergensers, and calling all of the carrion eaters of the world, saying to all of the fowl of the world, Come to the feast of the day of God Almighty, and eat the flesh of captains and kings. And you read the description of God treading out the winepress of the wrath of God, and blood running in the streets of Jerusalem to the depth of the horses' bridles. And I know many people who go to churches, among them a man who died some years ago and whose son is now carrying on in his television programs, Richard DeHaan, who said in a little booklet of his, Dear Reader, I cannot think of Jesus Christ coming back to the earth as a wrathful, conquering king. Because the Jesus Christ that he thought of in his mind, the one he had created in his mind's eye, was a kind of a pusillanimous pansy. He wasn't a conquering king. He was a kind of an effeminate, nice little guy, with brown locks tumbling over his rounded shoulders, with hands that had not, never done an honest day's work, would be fit perhaps... Uh, 
not even a housewife. She would take care of hers better by using all of the various soaps that would preserve and protect them. But with a far-off gaze, and you know the rest of it, a kind of an effeminate individual. Because the Jesus that a lot of people preach in this world is that kind of a personality. He said, I will show wonders, signs, blood, and fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, as it would appear to be from this earth, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, Peter goes on, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, and that's what he was in the flesh, approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him or by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, meaning God allowed it, it was part of God's plan, they did not thwart what God had in mind. Ye have taken... Peter went out of his way and made great pains to explain to those wicked people who did it in their mob violence and their insanity that they only did what God allowed. They did not overcome or countermand the plan or the program of God. So by the foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God has raised up having loosed the pains of death and then follows a powerful sermon on the resurrection of the dead David is dead and buried, and finally at the end of it, he said in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. How much power do you have? How much power do I have? Now, right now, physically, I don't have as much power as I had when I was 19. When I was 19, I could throw a bowling ball so fast, I thought I was going to splinter the pins. When I was 19, I could do yard work and other things at a far greater clip than I can do today. Now, Pappy, I'm going to catch up with him in a few more years. Pappy and I could have a bowling contest, and I could probably throw the ball a little faster than Pappy could today. But I'd get my sons there, and three of them could show me up, and it would look ridiculous, especially with my injured right elbow. So I probably couldn't throw a bowling ball at all now that I stopped to think about it because I'm quite, quite awkward with my left hand. When I see a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger appearing on television posing, and I shook Arnold's hand, and thankfully he took it easy. He was real gentle. He said, how are you, Mr. Armstrong? And I drew it back real quick, you know, because he could have. I could have drawn back just a stump. But if you've ever seen Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I have and talked with him and seen him up close, you know, in our own gym on the college, he, of course, for years, was what it was, Mr. Universe or Mr. World or whatever he was, but he was the champion of all of the weightlifters. And, of course, he is a very powerful man. Now, men are impressed by that, and increasingly women are taking up bodybuilding, and they even have magazines now showing women with the most grotesque muscular development looking like men, almost, uh, where they have no body fat, and where it's all just glistening muscle because they oil their body. But you know, we basically are impressed with strength and with power. I am an average-sized man. I'm not tall, I'm not short, I'm kind of medium. I think of myself as short. But once in a while, I'll see someone a little shorter than I am, once in a great while. But if I'm standing in the cafeteria line, and somebody comes walking in like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or a Wilt Chamberlain, I feel like an absolute midget. 
Now, when I was out in California recently, I walked into the place where I buy my clothes, and somehow, I guess Jim Thornhill gave them a copy of a picture that was taken, that was taken of me standing alongside Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And there on the wall is me, looks like a little gray-headed dwarf, and this normal-sized, nicely proportioned black man, about seven foot two or whatever he is. And it's a ridiculous picture. But, you know, we are impressed by huge size. When I see a great big bull of a man, about six foot eight, that weighs about 260 pounds with biceps as big around as my thighs, I just stare at that guy. I say, look at the size of that guy. And I think, man, I'd hate to meet him in a dark alley at night or, or have him in a football uniform wanting to get the ball away from me. I'd just say, here, take it. It's yours. I, and I, I just drop it and run somewhere else. I don't want it anymore. You can have it. We're impressed with power and with strength. Now, I like to hand load. Fred likes to hand load. You know, an awful lot of people have made mistakes because men are continually striving to get bullets to travel faster, so apparently they want to get that one round when they're out hunting someday where they can hit the animal on the off hind leg and he'll dissolve in a pink mist, and it just that's it, you know, ultimate power of a bullet. A lot of people have made big mistakes, and they've loaded their bullets up so powerful that they just lose part of their face. And as I've said, being a man of but one face, I hope both spiritually and physically, I try to load mine very carefully, a little below the maximum allowable velocity, so that the bolt doesn't come back into my eye. I continually strive, and it's ridiculous, and I hate that little voice, and I'm going to conquer him, I'm going to get him to shut up someday, who always squeaks at me right in the height of my backswing, kill it! Because for some reason, when I'm standing on the golf tee with that little helpless ball, it looks so little. And that big driver looks so big. And I feel so strong. And that fairway is so vast and so wide open. And that little voice says, kill it. And if I listen to that little voice, it goes in the lake, it goes in the trees, it goes over here about 30 yards. If I tell that little voice to shut up, and I just hit it smoothly, I can't believe how far I can hit that little ball. But every golfer continually strives to hit that ball farther and farther. We want to exercise that power. You ever seen a bowler after they release the ball? They'll stop and they'll jig around on one and then the other like Rodney in the ad. And eventually, if the ball looks like it's coming right into the pocket, they'll take their fist and they'll go, Pow! Like that, as if they're actually knocking over all of those pins with their fist. What they're doing is projecting their own physical energy and power from where they're standing down the end of the alley to those pins. I've seen women do that. And they make that gesture because we are impressed with power. Turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew. Let me show you something I think we oftentimes do not realize. Nearly always, the way in which I see this quest for power manifested by the churches and by preachers and by religious people is in healing. The reason being that that is perhaps the only way in which they can see with their eyes an actual miracle taking place. They can see a sickness. They can see a deformity, blindness, ugliness, a burn, deafness, dumbness, insanity, or something. And they can physically see it, investigate it, probe it, come to understand it, see it medically and scientifically. Then if it is healed and it's gone, they see evidence that a miracle took place right in front of their eyes. So for most people, 
And that's why people like Oral Roberts in his early days, and Jack Coe, and A.A. A. Allen, and Ernest Angley, and other such people are basically successful with whatever it is they're trying to do, and Amy Semple McPherson and people like that. Because people think that the power of God finds one most important method of manifestation in religious circles, and that is by healing. Because after all, seeing someone walk away after a quiet counseling session and maybe some quiet prayer together, and then over the span of ten years, with the help of God's Holy Spirit, turn his entire life around, ten years later, have a sound, wonderful, happy marriage, obedient children, a balanced checkbook, a successful job and a lucrative livelihood, better physical health, good diet and exercise, all the result of God's Holy Spirit reaching his heart and his mind through a quiet counseling session and prayer, that's not very impressive. How are you going to wait around ten years to try to assess the change in somebody's life? How do you see something that is titillating and is satisfying and exciting to you? like watching a bulldozer scoop out the earth, or a rocket being launched, or two huge trucks playing tug-of-war. But now, if you can see someone throw away some crutches, or see someone all stooped over stand up straight and begin to leap across the stage, that would be exciting. In the fourth chapter of Matthew, we read, in fact, of the greatest titanic struggle that occurred from the time of the creation to the time of the so-called fall, but it wasn't a fall, that's an accident, Adam was pushed. But anyway, the original sin, and the time of the Noatian deluge, and what we don't realize is what kind of a titanic struggle this really was. Jesus, verse 2, had fasted forty days and forty nights, and afterward he was anhungered, and he was really, I'm sure about to starve to death because the average person would last no longer than about eight days, they tell us, and I think that's about the longest. Maybe it's 11 days, I forget, is the record of absolutely no food or water for the average man or woman. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So instantly, Christ answered with the Scripture. The devil then took him. Now, this is really what happened. Christ was not defiled because Satan was the prince of the power of the air and actually had the power, and that is power, to bodily convey Christ from wherever he was up to the topmost part of the top building in the temple, the temple itself, its parapet, its topmost pinnacle of the roof. And there they were standing up there. And Jesus didn't just take a bound and jump up there. He was as limited in his musical, uh, physical step or his reach or his uh, you know, ability to run or jump as any other person would be. So the devil set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If you be the Son of God, trying to appeal to his vanity, what do you mean if? Put him down and say, you've hurt my ego, but Jesus was not going to give in to that. Cast yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. But of course, he was perverting the scripture. He was twisting it. Now, how many times have you been in a very tall place, 
and the most fleeting little thought just flickered through the back of your mind and you thought, what would it be like to jump? You know, people do toy with that thought. Sometimes they do it because they're trying to kill themselves. I sometimes wonder if demons don't try to influence people to do things like that, and it always has been an opinion of mine that many, if not all, I'm sure not all of them are, because people can be mentally deficient or mentally ill or so distraught or so angry, frustrated, thwarted, or sick at heart that they can take their lives without Satan the devil having to be present or having anything to do with it. But I'm certain that many suicides are deliberately caused by demon influence, if not possession. And I sometimes have wondered whether demons are not ready to try to tempt people to cast themselves down because it shows that Satan the devil used that artifice against Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 7, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain. Tradition claims it was Haramon, and it may have been. And that was about, uh, what, 110 or so miles to the north, northeast. And so, just whizzing him in the skies, the Bible plainly says Christ was actually conveyed there. It wasn't in a vision conveyed there by Satan the devil, and he showed him all of these verdant fields stretching as far as you could see in all directions. He could probably see all the way up into the Taurus Mountains of Turkey and all the way to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and all the way down toward the Maritime Plain and the blue, hazy Mediterranean Sea in the distance and all the verdant pastures and the lands in between. And all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, the beauty that he could see. And he said unto him, all these things will I give thee if you will fall down and worship me. It is pointed out by Bullinger in Companion Bible that Christ did not contradict this claim and that Satan the devil is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. He is called the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, and that he used a whirlwind or a cyclonic wind, a tornado, to destroy the home and the family of Job, that he had the power to afflict Job with boils, that he had the power to completely crush those people under stone and mortar and to kill them by using the wind. Now, if he is the prince of the power of the air, and he has the power of tornadoes, the power of cyclones, typhoons, and hurricanes, does he have the power of the ocean waves, the power of this physical earth? Would he have, let's say, the power to even bring about an earthquake of a certain size? Would he have the power to interfere in the eruption or to cause the eruption of a volcano? Satan the devil plainly told Jesus that he had the glory, the power, the strength, the military, the economy in his hands of every nation on the face of the earth and offered to give it to Christ. Of course, he would have gone back on his word, but then, you know, the devil is the liar and the father of all liars. If Jesus would bow down and do what? Worship the devil. Then he could have the power of the world. Now, I know men in this world that have power. I know other men who act like little puppies in front of those men. I live in a community where there are several millionaires, one of whom recently purchased a huge, beautiful ranch across the road from where I live. I've never failed to see other people run up and act toward that man in not much the same way my dog acts toward me when I come home. Almost roll over, you know, and say, here I am, I need to be patted or coddled or petted or whatever, because this man has money. 
And men respect and admire and virtually adore and worship and they're envious of and they want to be like men who are exceedingly wealthy, that have millions of dollars, maybe who are over great corporations who rule over the lives of hundreds of thousands of other people. They admire that. They lust after it. They covet after it. It can become the driving force that determines everything they do, every decision they make, every trip they take, every bit of education, every attempt to achieve success is to get what those other, other men have to emulate their success and their fortunes, to rule over other men, because after all, the dictionary definition of power is not only the ability to do work measured in terms of what one horse can do, like horsepower or the British thermal unit or watts or volts or other measurements of electrical power or energy or heat or light or the ability to shove or to pull or to push a certain weight in terms of the hydraulic pressures of so many pounds per square inch or 8.3 pounds per square inch of pressurization inside an airplane. We have many ways of measuring power. But the ultimate achievement of power that men covet is the ability to get other people to do what they say, is to rule over other men. In other words, they want to be God. They want to stand on that ultimate pinnacle of power where their word, if not their whim, is law. Now, we read in the book of Revelation that at the time of the great battle between the beast power and Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it says, people adore the beast and they say, who is like unto the beast and who is able to make war with him? That is the worship of military strength and the worship of military power. Now, how does this come down to us? Satan the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He is the god of this world. Most of us don't recognize him, don't recognize how he works, don't recognize all of his subtleties, don't recognize his ability to deceive us, the kind of a hold that he has on the world's entertainment, the world's art, the world's literature, its music, its habits, its ways of life. Everything that you see out here that appeals to your appetite, anything that will get into your life and will get a hold on you from a, a slight little thing of some kind of a pill to coffee and cigarette habits to drugs to pep you up or slow you down or to the hard stuff that people use like heroin and cocaine to the scene of kids smoking pot or your sex drives or anything else you want to mention. Satan the devil is sitting up there in heaven like the master musician playing on all of those appetites. This world belongs to him. It's his in this beautiful day out here today. But most people do not equate the kind of power it took for Jesus Christ of Nazareth to completely break the spell of Satan the devil, to resist everything he proposed, to give him an order finally. In verse 10 it says, Jesus said, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. You don't have the power to withstand an onrushing locomotive. You don't have the power to get out of the way of a bullet once it's been shot or fired at you. You don't have the power, most of you, to resist even a strong young man who wanted to attack you and maybe mug and take away the purse. Mug means simply just beat you up or push you down or kick you or knock you out or injure you or even kill you if you're a lady with a purse. 
or to beat up and leave virtually a candidate for the hospital, most of the men in this room. How little power, how little strength we really have. Many of us could not get up from our chair and run from here across the street without experiencing extreme difficulty, a possible heart attack. We just wouldn't make it. How much power do we have, and how do you want to measure that power in terms of strength, of muscle power, of mind power, of financial or economic power, of mental power, or of spiritual power? Now, God says over in the book of James, the fourth chapter, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan the devil has more power than all of those things I was talking about before. All of those big loaders, all of those big trucks, all of those rockets, more power can be unleashed in one great, huge, dynamic thunderstorm than all of the hydrogen bombs ever exploded, exploded rather, to date. And Satan the devil can actually use that kind of power. But Satan the devil is more subtle than that. He doesn't come to you with brute force. He doesn't come to you and try to knock you down. It's a lot easier just to get you to be like a little child, desperately hungry to be nourished by the nourishment that he's able to give you in this world and to have you completely dependent upon this world for everything, for that which you feed into your mind, that which you use to entertain yourself in your leisure time the kind of books or magazine articles you read, the kind of movies or television shows you watch, the kind of physical appetites you satisfy, the places you go, the people with whom you are friendly or whatever, the the goals that you might set for yourself, where you're trying to get in this world, material goals. Satan the devil will use these and many more devices and artifices to try to keep you under his control and in his power. I doubt if any of us know the tremendous miracle it was, and to remind ourselves of the sermonette, of how there is great joy in heaven. Why? Why would angels zip around and leap and dance and shout and perhaps laugh and clap one another on the back at the sight of a person coming out of a baptismal pool with water draining out of their hair? Because they know that once more a huge set of spiritual shackles have been broken and that the power of Satan the devil has been shattered, and that a human life, which can eventually become God life, has been plucked out of what is eventually to become a lake of fire to consume all of those who do not repent, and has been rescued for the kingdom of God. And so angels laugh and leap and shout for joy over every sinner that does repent. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's far more power than the power of a giant steam shovel or a 707 jet or a rocket engine to be able to have the power dwelling inside of your heart and your mind imparted to you from God's Holy Spirit that would actually cause the nicest, meekest-mannered, mildest little lady among you to have such an aura of strength and power about her, that a being as powerful as Satan the devil fears to be around her? That by her will, by her statement, the Lord rebuke you, if there's any question about it, 
calling upon the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, she can cause a being that has more power than all of Hitler's armies to tremble in fear and to get away from that environment as fast as he can scoot because he's afraid of what might happen to him? Now, that's invisible. You can't see that. When I think of some of these evangelists I'm talking about parading and prattling around on a stage, trying to convince an audience that they're cavorting and their hoarse voice perspiring, shouting ignorance is power, is the most ludicrous insanity I've ever heard. The power of God is so far beyond that. Let's turn to the twelfth chapter of the book of Hebrews right quickly and remind ourselves of some other great famous people. You know, the eleventh chapter is the chapter that tells us about all of the great patriarchs and prophets of the past. And I'll remind you quickly as you turn to the twelfth chapter, beginning in verse 18, of David, who went out there and said before Goliath, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David had what you can call stupid faith. It was just dumb, simple faith. It was uncluttered faith that was not in any way technical or complex. It wasn't reasoned out. It wasn't studied. It wasn't worked up. It wasn't timorous or tentative. It was just plodding faith. There's an uncircumcised Philistine. There are the armies of the living God. This doesn't make sense. So he picks up some rocks, and he runs toward the giant, and with his slingshot, kills this monster while the army is over there trembling with fear. Drags his head by the hair of the head after he slew him and cut off his head with his own sword, back to the tent, and deposits it at the feet of Saul, who was head and shoulders above every other man in the kingdom. And to David, it just didn't make sense. There's an uncircumcised Philistine. Here are the armies of the living God. What about Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat, you read of him in Second Chronicles 20, who went out before an onrushing army of allies with nothing but a song on his lips and told the people of Israel or of Judah to sing a song and the armies got all confused and turned on each other and killed each other to virtue of the last man and the Israelites went ahead and gathered up tons and tons of spoil they left behind. What about Elijah? When Elijah perhaps made the mistake even as the, in the fact that he was a great prophet of God that a lot of other people do. And he wanted some re-encouragement or some support from God. He was frightened for his life because of Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel sought his life. And so there was a great giant clapping thunderstorm. And Elijah emerged out of his cave. And the lightning was booming and crackling. And the thunder was rolling and the clouds were black and it was pouring rain. But the Bible tells us God wasn't in the rain or the thunder. And fire, fire crackled and ran along the ground. And God wasn't in that. And finally, everything quieted down outside. There was even an earthquake. The cave was shaking. The earth was rolling. Elijah didn't hear anything. God wasn't in the earthquake. And finally, outside the cave, there was nothing it said but a small stillness or a still quiet. And a voice spoke to him and said, Elijah. He said, Yes, Lord. And God was in the still, small, quiet. I have always taken that to mean, don't look for an earthquake. Don't look 
for a great crackling thunderstorm. Don't look for some demonstration of great power physically. Sometimes you find the greatest power of God in a still quiet. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18 it says, Ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire. Now what if we were? What if right out here somewhere in Tyler were a mountain about 6,000 feet tall rearing up into the sky? And what about if perennially and perpetually every single day that was like a Mount St. Helens and it rumbled and it shook and it looked like it was burnt black with fire and huge roiling black clouds were just gushing and pouring out of the stack-like cylindrical cone at its top and tongues of flame. And every now and then a man would go trudging over there and come back with his hair shining white and his face glowing so that you could hardly look at him and you would hear thunderous rumblings and low roars over there and you would say, that must be the voice of God. Would you get tired of it? Would you take it for granted? Would you become accustomed to it? After it had been out there for 40 years, what would be your reaction to the mountain that rolls and rumbles and burns and boils and explodes and emits flame and fire? Maybe the same reaction that the Israelites had. And we read of what their reaction was. So, Paul says, You're not come to the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, but a lot of people would like to be able to touch a mountain that burns with fire. They would like to be able to have earthquakes when some human gives command. They would like to be able to see manifestation, demonstration of physical strength of some way to re-support, to re-encourage, to buttress their faith. Nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. God doesn't always create a storm for us or black out the sun. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard interpreted or entreated, I'm sorry, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with the dark. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, but you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of invisible angels that you cannot see. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And their names are John and James and Peter and Paul and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and Judas and Silas and Philemon and Timothy. And to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, because there is a spirit in man, and that nature and that character that is made perfect is retained, and God knows exactly where they are, and those, like a pattern, will become a spirit being in the future, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel, See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not or refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, 
as of those things that are made, meaning physical and temporal. They pass away. They've gone. We have no recollection of what happened to the ancient tabernacle or the ark that was in the wilderness or the old tent. That those things which cannot be shaken, character, the kingdom of God, the family of God, the soon coming ruling government of God that will endure for all eternity, which cannot be shaken, may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. You know, I think oftentimes of how much time and thought and effort we put into worrying about where we're going to live, renting an apartment, renting a house, trying to buy a home, build a home, the planning, the thinking about putting down roots, where do we belong? What little tract, what little lot, what little piece of acreage is ours? And like Will Rogers said, buy real estate. It's the only thing they're not making any more of. And we think in terms of security. And we wonder, is this the place where I will live when I die? And we think in terms of material longevity, of our own lifespan, and we think, what will I have to leave my children? And yet, it tells us in the Word of God that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Isn't it interesting that even insurance companies like to have as their symbol the rock of Gibraltar, as if it is powerful and a symbol of something which is immovable, and yet the Spanish are going to get it yet. You just watch and see. But they say you want to get a piece of the rock because it's seemingly a type of a huge fortress that cannot be moved. We receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably and with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. If you wonder about the power of God, then go home and get an encyclopedia and just look up the word sun. Look at its comparative size. Find out the helium-hydrogen process of a continuous nuclear explosion an hydrogen bomb that has been going off continually for billions of years and will continue for billions more and is shining and giving us heat and light and energy out here today. And to God, that is less than one grain of sand on the seashore of the entire Pacific coast. It is less than that even in terms of the galaxies that are beyond, and our sun is but a yellow dwarf in the Milky Way. The power of God being equated with hoarse-voiced evangelists, with people shouting or turning up the volume on a microphone? Nonsense. But I think a lot of times we don't realize how much power it took for Almighty God to wrest us out of the clutches of Satan the devil and how much power must be manifested in our lives through the power of God's Holy Spirit to keep Satan the devil at an appropriate distance and to keep us in the church and the work of God. The power of God may be manifested in our lives in the same way that it was to Elijah, in a small, still, quiet moment. But you must know that the power of God is in you, it is with you, it is everywhere around you. And if you ever doubt it, just for a quick moment, don't look very long, glance up at the sun.